0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mangum Watches. I'm your host, Lee. I am here. I'm joined by Spencer Spencer. How are you? Doing well, man. And only a threesome today. We did not get our fourth on a foursome. We have only three today. Just BJ. BJ, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Yeah. Uh, BJ, that's a... that that. I say threesome, that uh, might sound a little sideways to you. That's a uh, that's a golf reference, threesome, okay. foursome, threesome, threesome, foursome. Yeah. <laughs> the one would have worked you, too. Once you start playing golf, you'll realize uh, where I was going with that. Yeah. Anyway, only three today here on the Mangum Talks Brain Trust as we review movies. But we are forging ahead with just three. Why? Because we're in the backside of Christmas. We're recording on the 26th and we have a Christmas movie and we want to get it out while the season is still generally fresh. We are re- reviewing It's a Wonderful Life today. That's right. The original from a million years ago. It's a Wonderful Life. The one everyone has seen. This is the movie review podcast no one was asking for. But yet, here we are. Mangum Talks. We're doing it here on Mangum Watches. It's a Wonderful Life. BJ, it's your first time ever watching It's a Wonderful Life. What did you think of the movie?
1: Um, I'm almost positive that I've seen pieces of it before. Like, Hard so, to avoid. Um, it was... It, it It's a perfectly nice movie. Um, it It is hilariously long for, for a movie from back then. It is uh, long. I agree. And uh, you're not going to be happy about this, but I found it more engaging than Polar Express. <laughs>
0: okay. <You're> <laughs> I think that's a me. fair I'm, call. I've, t- I've calmed down about Polar Express. You okay. I've, uh, the Christmas season has lowered my blood pressure. Express it was not. Our, we're all entitled to our own opinions. Spencer, what would you think of It's a Wonderful Life?
2: It's a film that always astounds me. I've seen this thing probably 20 times over the years, yet it's one of those films that falls in the magical category of where it truly doesn't matter. I could walk into that film at any point and sit down and still be enraptured by it. It is a damn near perfect film, which is also a fascinating exercise in how much views can change over time and how valuable copyright lapsing could be to make an American classic. So yeah, I'm all in for talking about and enjoying this film at all times.
0: I like the I like the movie, obviously. I mean, I'm a big, like, sucker for... I mean, I, I'm known in my friend group as really liking rom-coms. Um, this is obviously not a rom-com, but the same sort of vein, right? I, I, like, I like to sort of, like, dispel with... When I walk into a theater, I don't like to, like, be the cool guy. I don't like to be the guy who's, like, too interesting to care about the movie. Like, I like to just engage. And in doing that, oftentimes, like, movies that you might not expect me to like, I like. Like... Uh, Love Actually is my favorite Christmas movie. Uh, when Harry Met Sally makes me cry every time I watch it. Like, I, I like movies that are emotionally infecting, and this movie, by God, is emotionally affecting. Mm-hmm. The last 20 minutes in particular, are really, it's a real shit show for me. It's just, I'm just tissues, crying, struggling to get through the last 20 minutes, but in a good way, good crying. Uh, which is nice
2: it's a film that very effectively does a speed back with your emotions because it brings it it brings you up and it brings you down and then brings you up again in a meteoric rise by the end of it it really knows how to very effectively I don't mean this negatively manipulate you as you're going through it
0: now Spencer I will give you I'll give you this one this one was a failure when it was released we can all agree but, that this was a failure when it was released, there's no argument from me on that.
2: And it's actually one of the reasons for its ultimate success, which is one of the oddest things about it, of where it didn't even make back its budget, much less what it needed to to break even by Hollywood terms. It actually resulted in the bankruptcy of the director, Frank, Capper, Frank Capper's company. It kind of ended his role in terms of being viewed as a successful director in Hollywood. It was Jimmy Stewart's first film back after World War II, almost got him to go out of acting, just based on how unsuccessful it was. But... Partly as a result of that, when its copyright came up in the ni- early 1970s, either intentionally or by negligence, whatever else, the studio forgot to renew it. And so it entered the public domain. And as a result, cheap little mom-and-pop uh, television stations in the middle of nowhere went, like, okay, we have no budget for a Christmas movie, what do we run this year? Oh, this one's Christmassy and it's free, let's go with that. And as a result of that, it became the go-to Hollywood film as a result of the fact there wasn't an enforceable copyright about it so it became part of american culture because of a, a bit of a legal snafu in terms of enforcing their copyright about it partly because it wasn't successful
0: it's such a you know it's such a wonderful idea a wonderful haha see it's hmm. such a wonderful idea this this concept of like what would the world kind of be without the inputs and and effects that you've had on it right because mm-hmm. i think i mean i, I don't know like i I think about everything through the terms of me. I am a very egotistical person. So when I watch this, I am immediately thinking about myself, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, what if I was in the same situation? What would the world be like without me? And then, and then it's this sort of cool other side of the pillow because I think the tendency for folks is to think, or at least for me, would matter. Yeah. People don't care. Insignificant. Things in the realm would of be things. better. Uh, my life. Yeah. But but in reality, when we when we sit back and look at it, that the thrust of the film is the message of. You actually do have an impact on people, right? And I know we're not all this guy, right? We're not. What is the hell this guy's name? Um,
2: George Bailey.
0: Yeah, we're not all George Bailey. We are. We do all what? haven't had that impact. But I think on a small, I think the message is true on a smaller scale what? of the impact we've all had, and I think that's why it makes people feel so good.
2: And one of the things about it too is that George Bailey's suffering from the exact same psychology about it. His view mm-hmm. of success was the was what he had as a child. That his view of success was the great accomplishments, the touring the world, building incredible things, something they would pick a physical mark upon the future of humanity. And that's the only way he judges himself is through that lens. And he loses track of all of the wonderful influence he's had on those around him because it's not what he's viewing as, it's not how he's conceptualized the idea of success going forward. And so the perspective that Clarence and God give him. Allow him to finally realize, no, you've had an incredible impact on those around you. You just misunderstood what success was in life.
0: All right, so we don't have our our fourth member of Mangum Talks and Mangum Watches here, Levi, today. So I'm going to attempt to, to give the Levi perspective. Are we ready? Please. Okay. It's a wonderful life. Red state propaganda for sane in small towns?
2: Uh, here, here's the funny thing.
0: Question mark?
2: <laughs> I could see Levi saying that right now. Did you know this film was actually investigated by the FBI as being our commie propaganda? What?
1: Yeah, because they're all coming together at the end to, you know, it, it's groups of people supporting the, you know, the the town. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everybody basically pays into a central fund so people can get housing. It th- this is, uh, this is monopoly, you know, I mean, it, or it's the other side of monopoly. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you know about the the genesis of the Monopoly board game, that it's, like, it capitalism To convince people it was a bad
2: idea, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't uh, have that effect.
1: No. Uh, also, people <laughs> don't play by the rules, so that helps.
2: But, but it, uh, BJ, just like you said, they also throw in the idea that they accused it of disparaging the money class and disparaging capitalists and the bankers money. who are a necessary part of our institutions in this country. Yeah, cause L- Lionel Barrymore, who plays um, uh, Mr. Potter, Mr. Potter uh, who is yeah. just... Widely regarded as one of the most successful Evil people ever portrayed on the screen In American, American movies uh, He does a wonderful job with it um, But he embodies Everything that's meant to be evil about capitalism And he represents it in this film And the FBI looked at that and went You are fundamentally attacking the institutions In this country by making him the bad guy
0: I feel like we had a run I know I'm not breaking new ground here But we had a run of the FBI investigating stuff That's so silly that it's almost <laughs> like when that's a, When that's a trivia piece on something I'm almost like, well...
2: Yeah, Hoover.
0: Yeah, yeah. They they did that with everything, almost. Well, it, um,
2: it, it, it was the start of the second Red Scare. We're building up to McCarthy in terms of where this was.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so should we... I don't think we need to talk about the plot of It's Wonderful Life, but well, can we talk about... Uh, go ahead, Spencer.
2: Well, one thing I want to go into early because, BJ, you brought it up, and it's something other people commented on before. This is a surprisingly long film for its period, and it's a very oddly structured film, I think even by mod- by modern film standards, of where it doesn't really fit the kind of classic three-act structure, at least not a balanced three-act structure. No. We, er- we early on get the introduction of what the ultimate kind of focus is going to be, that, you know, God has heard prayers and he's sending down a guardian angel to help, but we spend like two-thirds of the film going through background of our character before we ever really return to that plot that kind of plot and that resolution and that drive really is only kind of like the last third of the film. But I think it really works and it really is successful because they kind of have that build up. And I think it makes the emotional payoff at the end that much stronger. Because we understand our main character and how he's reached that point. But I think it'd be a rough sell in terms of Hollywood today to have that kind of very heavily front-weighted um, film compared to where our back really focus of the plot and resolution are.
1: I mean, now, I still think it has a lot of the three-act structure. And, and I would say that the building up to taking over, uh, the, uh, building and loan is the first act taking over the building and loan and basically putting on his father's shoes Sure. is the Assuming second the act and then, you know, reaching the third the, reality, yeah. the end of his or rope the is part. the end of the second act. And then the third act is, is the, uh, what would things be like without you
0: and the transition back to modern time and the, Oh, everything's a great, yeah, I, yeah, I think I guess I, so I wanted to use that. that was the, I wanted to use that as a transition to a comment BJ made before you got on the line, Spencer, which is BJ sure. said, I'm not surprised that the film didn't do well when it was originally released. Um, BJ, it, it, did that comment come from the fact that it had kind of an atypical structure for movies of that period?
1: Uh, it came from a lot of things. So it didn't have the typical structure. It, it didn't have um, the same type of engagement that I feel like other movies from around that time had. Um, it didn't have. It basically didn't have any music to it. It didn't have any. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, it sort of had. You know, it sort of has leads, and it sort of has like these other things. But it, it. Um, I don't know. It. it I guess it's the sense of. Like you're following a lot of different things in the mm. movie, rather than having a much tighter story, a much more narrow focus, um, that that I feel like a lot more of the the films of the time had.
2: It, interesting. I was reading some of the uh, critic reviews at the time. One of the most cited bits of criticism was they found it too sentimental. That apparently they deemed it too optimistic <laughs> for its age.
0: That you know what that was. That is a time when these small town papers, or even like I guess some of the bigger public. Were run by men it was men writing the stories and it was men. That, oh this this shit. yeah like that that's what that that was a stupid 1950s male perspective um i am a little surprised the movie didn't do as well um as as maybe we would have thought uh looking back when it was originally released because it, I, I don't know man i i find the movie to be super engaging it catches you right away um, I feel like for the time, and I'm going to complain about this later, but for the time the acting was pretty good and I, I don't know, I feel like it leaves you feeling good and that's what we all want out of a Christmas movie. I'm, I'm a little stunned that it didn't do as well, um, didn't do that well when it was released to be honest with you.
2: I, I think it, it, to a certain degree it was just a problem of its era. For Frank Capra films, which this is very much in the, the genre of those, if you've seen other ones like you know Mr. Deeds or um, it's, um, yeah. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, um, mm-hmm. a lot of great movies. Are very optimistic. They're very much believing the American dream. He was an Italian immigrant who very much was invested in that, and I think that kind of optimism worked great in the lead up to World War One. I. I think in this period, in the aftermath of World War World War Two, I'm sorry, the lead up to World War Two, this aftermath of World War Two, I don't think people were as ready for it or as willing for it anymore. I think there was a certain degree of jaded mentality that was kind of going into it, so they found this kind of you know cloying rather than what they were really looking for. Also, I think, to a certain degree, he was heavily accused of being, like, invested in communist propaganda during the building Red Scare, so that could have been an element of it, too. Could
0: have been, and yeah.
2: Also, this was Jimmy Stewart's, as I said, for his first film after he came back from World War II, where he previously played very kind of light everyman kind of roles. And this started more of a run of doing, of kind of playing off that, of where he's very much the everyman, and he's very unhappy with the fact that he is. There's a lot of twisted kind of pain and regret that's going into his character. I don't know if people were really ready to see that kind of different acting focus from him too. This was before he did a lot of Hitchcock films that heavily went into that role, and I think by that point people were better ready for it.
0: Yeah, maybe it's just that what people expected at the time was an hour to 15, hour to 30 minute movie that was quick, easy, didn't make you think a lot, didn't have the sort of brutal scenes um, that this does. Because there are some moments where you're like you're it really kind of hits you. That's one of the things uh, I... forget. didn't want to... Did people, maybe people didn't want to think that hard at the movie.
2: That's one of the things I forget. Everybody remembers the last 20 minutes of this film. Because it's one of the most uplifting, happy, yes. you're crying, Ooh. happy tears by the of this. You kind of forget how damn dark this film gets to reach that point.
0: Yeah, one thing that, that sticks out to me as I watch some of these older films is the role that alcohol and bars have in the movie. If you notice, sure. like before about 1970, if someone goes to a bar it's angry mad drinking that's what it is like and, and for, at some point we started to portray the small town bar as something very different in later films right it's like that's where you go to gather to talk to meet people it's where the out of towner first comes you know that's the first stop in their, well, yeah in their, I, their I also think it's a, a
1: a big change from what they drank because it's it goes from hard liquor to beer and, and sure. I, th- I think this, this is sort of the you know I don't know if people would have had you know bottles of liquor at home I think my guess is that was a little bit less common
0: in the garage in the <laughs> 40s I just it in the garage, like, like ju- in have... the garage.
1: Um, but, but th- this is sort of a, you know it's not it's not a social it's not at like really a social thing
0: It just stuck out to me because it was apparent that when when uh, Bailey is drinking, Mm -hmm. he's going to a bar he's doing so it's all predicated on the idea that he's upset he's depressed he's sad he's angry drinking and like it's it's like that it's almost like the bar and alcohol is just it's just a mechanism to show you how sad he is yeah that's you know that's a really interesting
2: kind of call I wonder if like the censor board at the time the Hayes Code I wonder if they almost kind of like required that because bars had only been legal for like 10 years at this point again after we we left Prohibition so they're uh, Sorry, public bars. Um, yeah. So I'd I be, I be kind of curious to wonder whether there was actually a bit of a Hollywood censoring required that if you're going to portray a bar, you better portray the character in a deep, dark, emotional state when he's there.
0: Not like What It Becomes, which is like I compare it to my favorite from movie ever, Love Actually, right? So in Love Actually, there's a million different storylines, but there's one, which is kind of one of my least favorite storylines, of a guy who... <laughs> Comes to you uh, can't, can't get laid in Britain. He comes to the United States. What's the first thing he does when he gets off the plane? He goes to a an small American town bar, bar. He orders a Budweiser to BJ's point. He's ordering a beer, not hard liquor. And he meets people, he has a wonderful time, and this is how he gets introduced to the town. So it's just the role of the bar in cinema seemed to really, um, really change over the years. That's interesting. Call
2: I mean, to, tra- to transition to one of the points you noted next. I think it's definitely something that merits discussion acting in the film. I'm, cur- I'm curious of your thoughts because I, I think definitely some of the performance in this is very excellent, very great. Some others are a little bit more mixed, but I'm, cu- I'm curious of your thoughts, Leigh.
0: So, the guardian angel. Clarence. Um, resp- respect to the dead. Don't mean to talk ill of the dead. Did not think the guy knocked that out of the park. Um, the guy who plays uh, Jimmy Stewart, right? Who mm-hmm. plays George Bailey. Great, obviously. But here's my, here's the thing I get hung up on, right? Please. Um, is that, these older films, I don't know when it changed. I don't know what changed it. It might have been Godfather that changed it, to be honest with you, now that I think about it. But there was a period maybe let's let's call it pre-Godfather, where um, let me let me give an example the acted. Okay, Spencer. Um, I'm walking into a bar, you you asked me how I'm doing. Lee, how you doing? Ah, you see, I'm not so good. Ah, 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 ah. Like <laughs> the very theater style over the Overdone, time. overacted, every bit of emotion has to be dramatic built up to a 12 or 13 this is obviously a vestige of stage acting where you needed to do that to convey the emotion to the audience I just it, it's so different than what we have now and it seems much more lazy than a lot of the acting that, that, that in the modern area era that like I know that Jimmy Stewart is widely considered one of the better actors we had at that time period but even his stuff it seems so overdone and it's just, it really kind of takes me out of it a little bit, um, even though I know it's a, a product of that era.
1: So one of the things that I just don't know, but I wonder if it's the case, is uh, like how people were in movie theaters because I feel like it wasn't as quiet as it was today. Like I, I because for uh, you know, and like I don't know who <laughs> to ask anymore, but like it just <laughs> seems like it's supposed to be easy to pick up. Like if you're in a conversation or not, like not really paying attention. Then, like you get it very quickly, like what everybody's emotion is, um, and it's, it's
0: just yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. It, it's a little bit more, you know. You can glance over, get what's going on, and you don't have to be as you know focused and invested in like every little bit that's going on the way that I think that we've started to to consume movies because I feel like at, at the time, like you would be there for the news, like you. I don't know pay 10 cents to be in there all day and and you know see a couple of movies and some shorts in the and the news like that's this era
2: so yeah. not very much i mean I, I think the acting's arranged i think on the whole lee i think it starts to it's, i think this film is in some ways starting to embody the transition from the very kind of 1930s 1940s kind of like gangster kind of talk over each other kind of uh style of acting which is almost purposely stylized my guy what's his
0: name well, who's the guy he was in like uh casablanca maltese falcon hum-
2: humphrey bogart is one yeah. of the guys that embodies my,
0: my favorite humphrey bogart thing is that if you if you're watching a humphrey bogart movie and you forget what the plot is hang tight he'll summarize it for <laughs> he'll you repeat in it sure seconds you hey, see so he, he came in and he talked to her us. Uh, she said Do you it? like that thing i, I yeah it drives me nuts sorry
2: no no you're, you're this, I think, I think, is starting to embody to a more a modern and realistic kind of style of acting. And I think it represents some of the scenes of where there isn't actually necessarily dialogue going on. Some of the best moments of acting in this are just, let's have the camera just focus in on Jimmy Stewart being yes. abject emotional turmoil. Um, like, yes. when he like you know the scene at the bar. The scene at the bar of where the camera's just focusing in on him, and he is just sweating, and he's almost just shaking. He's barely able to keep in his emotions of just act, having no way out, not certain what to do, finally praying to God out of desperation is astounding acting. I can feel his turmoil just leaping off the screen at me. Several of the performances are also quite good, too. Lionel Barrymore was one of the godfathers of Hollywood for, um, in terms of his prior experience. He had been acting since the 1890s, and I think he does... It's almost purposely over the top as Mr. Potter, but I think it works. The fact he's that good, he's though. almost just comically evil in terms of how just much he just wants to just dwell over himself and being a very successful Scrooge kind of figure without the depression, apparently.
0: You don't need depth from that character because of all the stuff that Jimmy Stewart's doing.
2: Yeah. Uh, another character that does a much more understated performance and does great, in many ways for the plot, she's kind of the hero of the story, but Mary uh jimmy uh, george bailey's wife actress donna reed does wonderful in that is that is that role and the character itself is a really kind of workman to make the entire plot work of how much her relationship with george bailey is believable and powerful and how much her own effort to make this life work and her own effort is independent and separate and still also supportive and so okay so
1: so i i just want to throw a little wrench in the works uh the whole high school thing when he's you know four years out of high school and goes back to the party and and like the weird interactions that he has with violet and like
2: it it seems like he he would prefer violet or that's just his like what violet for those of is, is the is the blonde other girl that's in the film at many times right. the, the more loose girl if it will well, well you know depends on which version we have um <laughs> Certain element in both ones, just one's making a career out of it.
1: Yeah, so I guess for me, there's a lot of the sort of background setup, which I I wonder if it's just sort of cultural touch points that we don't have. Um, that I, I guess I, like I don't know what the purpose is, and it's kind of like a you know the the dance at the high school that that George ends up showing up at. I think that's supposed to like have him and mary have their like meet cute but it's kind of it's it's a little weird um and then you know some of the like offshoots of you know he convinced them to put a pool underneath was that just like they're showing
2: off that like they They, have uh, that that was actually just a coincidence they filmed it at a high school that had a pool underneath
0: huh
2: it just happened to have a pool underneath the gymnasium so yeah let's incorporate that um, and then everybody jumps sense. in and has a good time. I,
1: I mean, I guess that's sort of supposed to show that like George is a leader and excited about things and everybody's like happily following him. But it, there are th- things like that that just seem like I, all right, I don't know. Like can I'll, I'll accept out, it, but.
0: Can I point out that the, the, the movie was obviously written by a man. I mean, it's the forties.
2: Sure. It, it was actually written by a team, including a woman, but sure. Yes.
0: No, this is written by a man. Let me explain why. When George Bailey, his his alternate life, his wife without him can't be with men, Ca- has to be like a curmudgeon librarian, that, so not with a, not with another guy, can't can't stomach the idea that your wife in another so in another Spencer, has is not married to another person.
1: Are there is this like the the origin or or was it before of the the meme of like the the thing that we need to do to completely mess up the hot girl is put glasses on her and no. you know, put her hair
2: up. <laughs> That's existed time immemorial. But this <laughs> is a, this is very much... a If you want to talk about a weakness of the film, Mary's role in Pottersville, and that being viewed as just the ultimate negative thing, like, you don't want to know it, George, she's an old maid. That is the most out-of-date, not-working element of this film for me. I think even Frank Capra said during the 70s in an interview, it's like, yeah, I wish I'd done that one differently. I kind of, that one did not land how I hoped.
0: No, that, that, that was preposterous. Um, I mean, I think the, the way to do it would be um, to have her obviously married to someone else, but just not yeah. as happy. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, yeah, that's the way to do it.
2: She, she's, she's living the same life George is, but she's very fulfilled in it because this is what she always wanted. This is what she always dreamed for. And she's making a lot of accomplishments with it. She's, helped, she's running the friggin' USO while managing four kids. This is an incredible woman so playing off the idea that she's living an otherwise successful life but it's not the one that she wants and she's disappointed and she doesn't have her kids and all the things that actually make her happy would have been a much more effective use of that character and role and more in keeping with what they showed instead I think they were really just kind of trying to hit on a cultural touchstone that at the time the ultimate failure of a woman was mid-30s going on 40s not married and just working a job alone that was viewed as a failure as a woman at the time in a way that really doesn't resonate now (laughs) Uh, Spencer okay. I think you're going
1: way high on the ages. She's probably 24, 25 cuz I think George Bailey is 28.
2: No, he was he was meant Potter to though. be by the, by the, by the time we reach that point I think they're meant to be in their 30s. Um okay. just, just, just from the sheer yeah. past but yeah, They're yeah, oldest yeah. kid, their oldest kids like you know in the, uh, 10 or 11 at that point. So I th- okay. I think that's, that's what we're going for with that point. The yeah. act, it's one of the thing I also think doesn't necessarily work perfectly in the in the uh, high school scenes is that Jimmy Stewart was 38 at the time that he was filming this film. and he I think surprisingly he, young, though. He is youthful. I think it's still pushing it when it comes to them having doing all the ages of the characters. I think it works, but it kind of took me out of it a little bit that he seemed distinctly older at that point.
0: Are you ready for my yeah. second Levi comment of the pod?
2: Oh, looking forward to it.
0: Okay. I don't think it's particularly bad what happened to Mary in the alternate universe. I mean, look. Uh, glasses, hair up, librarian... You know, that, that does it for some people.
2: I, I, I think it's bad for her because it's just not the life she wanted. Uh, I, I think that th- that's what it is. She is one of the most fulfilled characters in the story because she's living everything she dreamed. I mean, at the very... B- if you want to talk about a character who accomplished... she not, not not, It's through the man that she loves and getting the life that she wants through them. They support each other. Yeah. Um, but so, the earliest moment, we see her characters, her whispering in his deaf ear, George Bailey, I'll love you to the day I die. And then her dream about kids and the wishes that she wanted of living in that house. Her life is in many ways fulfilled. It's just George who doesn't realize that it's also his dream too in many ways. It's uh, a wonderful
0: life too. We show a healthy divorce and co-parenting of the children um, of George <laughs> Bailey and Barry. Anybody, anybody want to help me fund it? What? No, yeah, thank we, you. We, Appreciate it. We, we just show three Christmases later. They've had an amicable divorce, and they're just showing America how to do the co-parenting thing uh, from different households. I if mean, did ma- they just if do this this that in the eighties? Sure, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, eighties would have done that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, wait,
2: here, here, here's another. Here's another thing I, I did not know, which is very much a product of the time. Did you know this? Other than like the high school it, scenes, this was filmed on a set. They actually built a town that was just spreading multiple acres to, to make this film.
0: So, question. Did they build the town for this movie or was this a soundstage that they, they were doing other movies? I,
2: I read that they built it for the movie, which may have also made... I might movie explain
0: movie. the mo- budget. The budget was actually pretty big for this movie.
2: It, it was like three, three or four million dollars for a film in 1946, which was not small. So, so why, just to, you know, take us back to the movie a little bit and,
1: and a scene that I didn't understand, why did Clarence not want George to see Mary? Like, it seems like his job is to be like, this is all the stuff that goes wrong. And that seems I, like his...
2: Yeah, that's sponsor. No, nah, I'm right there with you. I, I think, again, a lot of their use of Mary in Pottersville was the least successful elements, because he's treating it as if that... Not seeing that your fucking brother died, that you've, you've arrived at his grave. That's, yeah, sure, whatever. But seeing that's Mary, that's going to be the one that breaks him. Now, the, yeah. The, the scene of going to the graveyard, and I love that the graveyard is where Bailey Park would be it's yeah, that, a wonderful that's really bit of symbolism, cool. too, that that is the wasteland of the world that otherwise you would have built. Um, but yeah, that's one of the most effective elements of Ripples is seeing Harry's gravestone, realizing that all the people in that fucking transport died because Harry wasn't there to save them, seeing what would be this wonderful community that is now a graveyard because you aren't here. Oh, that's great. Mary? BG, I'm with you. That he's, why is he. If that's going to be the one that breaks him, and it, it even seems it breaks him more than his um, seeing his brother is that she doesn't know him, that she's not part of his life. And I can understand how they want to work with that, that, you know, she is truly a love of his life, she is everything that really fulfills him, and he's just kind of forgotten about that to a certain degree. That seeing that she doesn't recognize him could be effective, but BJ like you said, I don't get why then Clarence would hide that, other than he just knows yeah. that it's going to make George really, really sad. And so, to get actually, to go off of your, you know, the, the men dying in the transport,
1: how many movies... Uh, around this time are about the men that stayed behind and, like, sort of building them up as heroes. Because I wonder if that's another thing that people weren't really happy with. I mean, because this is sort of right after the war.
2: That's an interesting point. I mean, there were a few films that were coming out during this period that were built on the idea of, you know, veterans coming home. Um, Yeah. And some of them do them very well. But I don't really know about many films that really focus on a main protagonist of somebody that was 4F and and couldn't go fight. I, I hadn't really thought about that.
1: Sorry, Terry. You uh, were going off of. Uh, you had another question about the. We were going off the sets and the budget.
0: Uh yeah no I was just gonna point out that um the, the three billion dollars a year I haven't done the math right here but it's it's a lot of money because uh, twenty thousand dollars at the time um, was like three hundred and twenty thousand dollars of yep. today's money. I did and, I did look that up. It's significant. Yeah, so whatever the three million dollars was they did to do this is a massive amount of money um, in today's dollars. So yeah, it was an expensive film to make. It didn't didn't obviously do very well at all. Uh, and and since then, I, you know, question for you, Spencer. It, it got popular because I guess they let the 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 um,
2: copyright lapse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The I, the I P rights lapse. Does that mean they they haven't made money from the spike in? in this movie's popularity? Well,
2: it had a period. Here's the thing, of where it had about a 20-year period where the copyright was lapsed and in 1993, they were able to successfully renew it by some means and now it is... It's part of the reason you don't see it on television quite as much as it used to back when we were growing up. Um, it is now the exclusive ownership of, I think, of its NBC. They're the only ones that are allowed to run it during the holidays.
0: Mm.
2: So it had that kind of glowing period of where... It, Similar to like you know certain films come out during your childhood and everyone associates them with the holidays because it was, it was all running on TV. We all grew up with that film being the, the holiday movie that was running everywhere. I don't think it really is in the same degree other than it's just become so popular and is viewed as one of the best films now. Hmm. Um, here, here's a question for everybody. We've talked yeah. about some scenes that didn't work for us. What, you, what would you say is one of the, some of the most successful scenes in the film? What do you think embody why this is viewed as a great film?
0: The end, obviously... Um, why,
2: why? Why you, you talked about the end. Why is the end so successful in your view? Because I think everybody so agrees. The last twenty what, what minutes. what scene of
0: the end?
1: Yeah, where do you start uh, the because end? The, because matter? the end is a long. I mean, it starts with them jumping in the river.
0: Yeah. Um. I don't know. I don't think you can. I mean, I think that you you nailed it, Spencer, when you talked about how the film takes you very, very low in the 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 flashback to Potterville or whatever and then it brings you up meteorically i mean i think that when films are impactful it's because they have given you a change in the range of your emotion they've made they've taken you from sad mm-hmm. to happy happy to sad whatever and this film in a period of about 30 minutes i i, I recognize that the, the ends not like one scene it is it is it takes a while to build yeah right? but like it, the fact it takes you from very very low to very very high um in a film that's 70 years old is is pretty pretty spectacular
2: and if you want to talk about most successful moments, the moment that always makes me cry, uh, once he's on does that, does it really wave, make you cry? No, it actually even to, even to this day makes me misty and cry. Ah! Uh, this film is very successful at. A he, few he backed up on that. that. It makes him misty.
0: That's okay. We've talked about that before. That like, okay.
2: it, It's we're still crying. Quality. Crying
0: doesn't require blubbering. I do
2: tears. Um, but the moment he's on the bridge and the cop comes up to say, and we suddenly have the realization that the snow started to come down his lips bleeding in and his friend the cop Bert and I, this is a fun thing the fact that the cop and the, the, the cabbie are best friends named Bert and Ernie is apparently a coincidence Sesame Street did not draw the names from them I double checked <laughs> um, but once he realizes and has the moment it jumps to his friend's arms and starts running you know, yelling Merry Christmas right through town I'm, you know, I'm smiling ear to ear it's great But when he arrives back home and sees his kids, doesn't even care that the police are there, whatever, you still enjoy, I'm still happy as a clam. But when Mary comes back and has brought the entire town with her, and all the people he's helped, and all of his friends, and all of the community start coming in to assist him, I'm crying. Because that's the message of the film, ultimately, it's about the community coming together and helping somebody based on the support that he has. Such a communist, Spencer.
0: If only, you am. Ever, if only you ever needed money, Spencer, we could do the same thing for you. But you're never, <laughs> never going to be needed.
1: But well, you just need to steal $8,000 out of his pocket at some point, and
2: then... He wouldn't miss it. But it could have ended at any point there, but it just keeps building levels. The cop recognizing him running yeah. home, seeing his yeah. kids and being overjoyed, seeing his wife. Man, the kisses in these film were surprisingly romantic. The point I'm uh, surprised yeah. the censor board didn't cut him at some points. Um... Not caring, the police are there. The townspeople come in. And they've all offered all their money to help their beloved friend, who's done so much for them over the years. His, they get the wire. They get the wire, and his friend that was in plastics has sent him twenty-five thousand bucks to up fund his expenses. His brother arrives back from World War II and christens him the richest man in town. He finds, he, he finds the book left by Clarence, Tom Sawyer, the little note in there saying no man, uh, what, what, what's the line? Something like, no man is a failure who has friends, which is a wonderful yeah, message.
0: no man is a failure who has friends, yeah.
2: And, and then we come back to the little bell ringing and Zeus is the one who identifies it, that Clarence got his wings, and they're singing Old Ang's line. It's just like, they keep building it up more and more, heartwarming to the point you can't even hold yourself anymore by the end of it. It's just such a marvelous build. And every element feels earned because it's all things that they took so much time introducing and setting up and building up. Every one of these little side characters that comes in is not a random townsperson. We know them from the two hours we spent in, in this town previously. Even Annie, the, the, the servant in their house, comes charging in and makes a divorce joke, which felt remarkably ahead of its time for the period anyway. It, it's just so delightfully built up and earned. It's just excellent filmmaking to make it so heartwarming there at the end.
0: So one of the things I, I, like, I, th- I like to think about when I watch films that are really, really big in our culture yeah. is how other cultures think about it. And, like, recently I've gotten into, like, uh, studying, like, Hinduism and, like, specifically the concept of, like, your Dharma. And, like, basically one of the main thrusts of this is, is a recognition of how small we are and how brief we are on this planet sure and an acceptance of that and and in doing our duty an acceptance that we are not the center of the universe we do not have this outsized impact on everything and that is okay Mm -hmm. that we come to peace with that i just i I, there's like probably two billion people who are like identify as like hindu or hindu adjacent religions who would watch this film watch this film and be like fucking americans and they're like thinking that they're the center of the universe that they have such an important oh my god if i didn't exist the whole town would collapse like I, it it's made a fun, me laugh thinking about it
2: it's a it's a fun thought of where a lot of people are in the world who's watching it going yeah is anybody man. surprised by this really this is blowing their minds
0: god so self-important man they think that if they don't they don't exist that everything goes uh, to shit
2: another heartwarming scene that i very much liked is where it's um it's a, it's a moment of a character again having go, working through adversity but still finding incredible incredible heartwarming moment of, it, of is when um, George and Mary get married and on their friggin' wedding day there's a run on the bank so I think this is around the yeah. depression era sons of bitches and there's a run, Potter's trying to exploit it they use their honeymoon fund to pay for it all with two dollars left at the end of the day I, I think I even saw the other staff were pulling out their pockets too to you know, fund everything else as well but Mary has gone to the old rundown house and she's recruited some of George's close friends to put up posters and have a, a little, I think it's either a turkey or a duck is just spinning over next to the fire on a record recording everything else. Yeah. And it's... Spitfire. I mean, it's both just so delightfully heartwarming because it's characters that just so obviously care about each other and are so obviously trying to make somebody else happy and be happy together that... It's just beautifully executed in terms of that kind of scene. I love that his friends are there, too, to also help make it work.
0: I agree. You ready for my, my last Levi comment? Oh, God, please. Maybe we need some personal accountability in this world. I think that the pharmacist should have been allowed to fuck up his job so that he <laughs> could have lost it. <laughs> because if you're that shitty at your job, you need at some point to be held to account and to be taken out of your position. Well, he had All a we bad have day. Is young George Bailey covering for him. Um, he probably ended up killing like a bunch of other people. After Levi, he, he had Levi. a singular
1: bad day, he had a <laughs> telegram that basically told him that his son had died. Uh, maybe Spanish flu or something yeah. in the period.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, then um, stop working.
2: Take a day off. So. Yeah. The, the, the people will get their important pills from the only pharmacy in town somewhere else. You need the break, sir. Yep. Yeah. Now, that, that that's actually a really I forgot how dark that scene is. Of it's where, real
0: dark for sure, and it starts. Maybe that's part of it, right? Is that it? it like older audiences might have had just trouble getting into the film because it starts out in such a like jarring, like holy fuck, like this pharmacist is about so to kill people.
1: I think I think that there that there are things that would no longer be as accepted at like the violence. This, the, the shit of yeah, like yeah, like well, the that's, the ew, quick that's, anger and the violence, like is kind of surprising.
2: Well, um, I, I actually really... I, so um, Bear with me. I really appreciated that just because of how what? shocking it was. Not I how, mean, he was a good I, mentor to the kid. So what can shut, you say? Shut the hell up, you bastard. Uh, <laughs> it, it's one of those things of where the guy's deep depression, I felt, was well done. I, that, that, that's, that, I've seen that actor in thing things, I can't remember his name right now, but he does a very good job of just being a broken person during those initial scenes. But... His violence in that moment was just so stark and shocking that it effectively sold the scene for me, as well as the kids' reaction. The kid actor does a great job of—I don't know—I'm hoping they didn't actually hit the kid. God they help us if they did. But he really does sell the kind of just desperate fear and desperate need to, you know, advise this guy that he cares about that what's about to happen, while being terrified of him by the end of the scene. Yeah. They didn't
0: smack the kid. The, 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 I guarantee they had one of those like clappers that they were doing the sound yeah,
2: effect. A little squib. Yeah. An, an early <laughs> squib that kind of came out of his ear because his ear was bleeding yeah. by the end. Yeah, I,
0: don't I
2: mean, they so could have put that. It that in. Like it was a, There was a what?
1: cut in that scene, I think.
0: Anyway. Daniel Day-Lewis would have smacked the kid.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's a great introduction to the character because the character keeps showing up at various moments thereafter and playing a key role in the plot as well. The pharmacist of where he's there to give George his suitcase thereafter. He's there at the end to provide the big chunk of money. And He's one of the most... Distinct showings of how dark the world has become. Of when we see him in Pottersville as an ex, as a broken down ex con that the rest of the community treats as basically a homeless vagrant. Yeah. So, so I I think that also
1: might be one of the reasons that this didn't do so well because it requires you to pay a lot of attention and and keep that through line because it doesn't it doesn't show the turning points. It shows the aftermath of all the turning points. And I and. I think that it, it requires you you to think about it rather than like, rather than showing everything, which I think feels a little bit more common to, to how movie making was done at this time Mm. for the audience that like, it didn't show you, you know, the pharmacist getting arrested or, you know, whatever happened after he killed somebody. You you had to remember the details from earlier and connect them. Exactly. Um, and it, it was that way with a lot of things it was that way at the bar that that Rick the bartender was the owner instead of the Italian immigrant mm-hmm. um, yeah
0: you have to pay attention that's for sure I have a question for you guys do either one of you, have either one of you guys legit watched a movie in a I'm just gonna say, like a a, 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 a theater in a primarily african-american part of town with primarily african-American
2: uh i've tried i can't say it's the movie going experience i particularly enjoy
0: okay so i just want to be very clear about this because we're putting it out in the world i'm not saying that like all black people watch movies this way or it, it's, I, a, all I'm it's a trope is, sure well it, it is a bit of a stereotype but in my experience it's also been true when i have been in certain cities not every city with black people just certain places and it's this idea of the the black movie going experience, right? I'm putting that in air quotes. It's more interactive. It's, it's 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 a certain segment of a certain population. I understand that. I'm not trying to paint in broad strokes, sure, but sure. I am saying that I have been in those theaters because I did grow up in a town that had a, a large uh, African American community and
2: what does the represent?
0: East City Stand Up Vikings, and also had parts of town that had a theater in it that were primarily African-American that a lot of white folks didn't go to that I went to. Anyway, all I'm saying is that when you watch like Kings of Comedy and they're making the jokes about the the, the black people in the movie theater or whatever, I've mm-hmm. been in that movie theater experience. <laughs> no way this movie could have gotten over in that audience because, and this kind of goes back to what maybe I think, BJ, you were talking about earlier, is that if you have a movie-going audience that doesn't sit in their seat and watch Rapture, that, that talk, that joke mm-hmm. around, that get up and get down, that maybe order drinks, that do all this stuff... I don't think this movie's going to go over because it does require you to kind of lock in. And if you miss, let's say you miss 10 minutes from jump, you might, you might be completely blank on two or three thing callbacks that they do, you know, in the later part of the movie. Um, I bring up that sort of like viewing that that viewing experience in like the, the, the quote black theater, because maybe that's more reminiscent of what movie going experiences used to be where it was a little bit more. Okay. To talk, to get up to move around to say to to move up because uh, one thing i did notice in in, in watching the uh, movies this way is that like there's a lot of like get up and say oh i know that guy and walk up yeah. four rows and sit down yeah. and say how you doing bro like good to see you if all that's going on i don't think this movie goes over it's and maybe To to, to pull on that thread, maybe that's why it ended up being so popular when it was just on television and people were stuck at their homes, they're on their couch, and they're watching it to their
1: family, uh, you know, on Christmas.
0: Right, but but maybe maybe there was just less distractions than it when it was originally put in the theater. And I think
1: also, I think around this like it the showing show times weren't as much of a thing. Like I know that that's a thing at some point, and I don't know exactly when it was that you would like. Pay your money and just go and sit in the theater. So you could come in halfway through, Watch and, and that's that's probably why Humphrey Bogart would summarize the movie at random <laughs> points because people were just walking in at random points, and yep. you wanted to, to get you know uh you're, you're halfway through Treasure of Sierra Madre. You need to catch up now.
0: Yeah. So let me get this right. See, he lost. Recap?
1: The, we don't need no stinking
0: recap. He well, lost that metal bowl, and then you wanted to find it. And you it, paid me to come find it.
2: It, it, it was interesting reading a few contemporary reviews from like just like you know YouTube comments, whatever else, um, of people's reaction to the film today. And it's an interesting kind of change I think they made to today that Potter doesn't get punished in this film. There's no confrontation with Potter. There's no addressing the fact that he stole eight thousand dollars. There's no overcoming him effectively. Did he steal it? Did he, he find see, it? He popped. He did not return it. <laughs> he stole it. He so knew I it wasn't theirs, and he kept it with. for his own purposes. <laughs> so it, 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 here's just a question do you guys think it's in any way a flaw of the film because even at the time there have been a, I'm sure there was a lot of pressure that villains need to be punished it was part of the Hayes Code and Potter isn't Potter just gets away with it in this film do you guys think that works or you think that's in any way a flaw or what are your comments on the idea that Potter is kind of irrelevant
0: to the conclusion of this movie BJ um I can go first if you need me to yeah sure. go ahead sure um I actually like it. Now I understand that, like, probably the vast majority of the movie-going audience probably wants him to be punished. But I like it because I like the idea that your your happiness can can be derived without needing others to fail, be punished, wrist slapped, whatever. That it, sure, that yeah. it can be an that it can be an internal thing. That the, that your happiness can be derived out of your own personal experience and where you are at. And not things having to happen to other people. Mm-hmm. And so I really like that. I don't like the re- the negative reinforcement I think uh, the reinforcement that in order for you to be happy, other things have to happen to other people. It should mm-hmm. be a, a, an internally derived uh, emotion and experience. So I, I actually enjoy that.
2: yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of there with you. <laughs> It's so uncommon for the villain to just be kind of insignificant the resolution, and it could be a heartwarming resolution where the villain doesn't be punished. It's, it's really kind of novel. I really kind of appreciate it. But like you said, he's not necessary. He's an adversary, but he's not a key point to the art main character's happiness. And it's a really important aspect of things is him realizing that Potter's kind of irrelevant to that. I think it also kind of ties into the fact that, um, this is a weird comment from an agnostic like me, but it feels like a much more Christian resolution to the film, which I think is in some ways in keeping with Frank Capper's kind of Catholicism, that it's not, the, the villain doesn't need to be defeated by the hero. In many ways, evil is in many ways overcome by just living a good life and just the passage of time exactly. will overcome evil. The overcoming here is the community coming together without Potter being present without Potter hanging over them. The fact that he's out there and malevolent is always going to be present, but he's, Ultimately, not completely insignificant to the accomplishments that they've achieved and the happiness that they have. Leave vengeance for God. Your own achievements are here in the world, and evil will be overcome just by you living a good life. I think also
1: Potter is supposed to be an institution, more than just a person. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and and sure. so to have the person a fall. Force. Yeah, and and like, and in many ways, I don't disagree that this is, in many ways, an anti-capitalism film, uh, and. I'm not saying like you know you should have been investigated, but I, I think sure, that sure, they sure. do have a lot of points. Um, and I, I think that had Potter taken his downfall, like been taken down for some reason, it would have it would have required weird and sort of problematic would've, things to happen.
2: Would have been, like, well, been, been, been distracting. It would have been
1: distracting. It would have been like where do, where does how does somebody find out about the eight thousand dollars? Because that's sort of the only really wrong crime. thing that he's done yeah the only crime and like it doesn't matter for for the movie and you know it it doesn't it doesn't really take down the problem that potter is the problem that potter is has very little to do with that specific eight thousand dollar
2: no and, and if anything it's like in terms of the process of passage of time lionel barrow was an old man and potter has to be damn ancient by the end of this film in terms of a character yeah. Now, what he represents can endure thereafter, but the man himself is, will. Fi- is finite, and it's not probably that long for the earth.
0: I just think that in a lot of popular media, we have we have reinforced vengeance as a as a catharsis. And this like, is not we that need film. To, we need to see vengeance being being like portrayed upon those that we deem as evil, having done something improper, etc. In order for us to have the release, the catharsis release at the end of the film. Of being happy um and i'm glad that this movie doesn't do it uh but i think that we've trended the other way right yeah i mean but i I honestly think in popular movies now if the bad guy doesn't fall people feel unfulfilled yeah
1: people want to see in movies what isn't happening in real life and because this is just post-world war ii i don't think it's as necessary
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, possibly. That's it, a it, good
2: point. It's a weird kind of thing. Like like you guys have said, I felt like if they'd had Potter fall, it would have actually removed a certain element of realism from this film. Yeah. As much as you can say this film has a certain element of wish fulfillment and ideal of small town <laughs> life, it also is kind of grounded, really. Most of what's portrayed out and shown is actually pretty realistic and really precedes how, kind of how I would imagine in real life. If Potter had been in some way defeated or overcome, I think that really would have taken me out of... What is otherwise a fairly grounded production? <laughs> when you have fucking guardian angels arriving on bridges to prevent people from committing suicide.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I very, like. I, I think that there's that sort of interesting realistic aspect to it. Um, again, you know how much how common is that? You know how how common was that back then? Where mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of in many ways you're seeing a kind of boring film. It you know it's nothing outlandish. It there's nobody that that. Um, I mean, we we talked about a little bit about this last night at dinner. Like, there's nobody who you really want to be in their place. Like, they're they're not doing anything
2: fantastic. They're living a nice life. Like, th- don't this, get me wrong. This isn't wish fulfillment or fantasy of a film. Yeah, that's not what it's going
0: for. Yeah, I don't you, think you, it's boring. But I know, I know why you use that word. But I I don't well, I don't think it's
2: boring. well. I think it's a perfect word for it, anyways, because it's exactly what our main character feels. We're engaged as we're watching it, but the guy is bored as his toast as he's going through his life because he's just not accomplishing what he wanted. He's not getting the wish fulfillment that he desired, while well, we're just engaged with him living a good life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of the, like, I'm using it as the opposite for exciting. He doesn't sure. live an exciting, he doesn't live the exciting life that he wants to live. He doesn't exactly. get excitement in his life. And and so he's living a nice life by, by many standards, but it's boring.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that thing of, like, if you, were, if you were on, if you bought tickets to go to Rome, right, and you're playing, you, you can't go to Rome and you get sent to Venice, right? And the whole time you're at Venice, all you do is complain about being in Rome, or about not being in Rome. You don't see the beauty of Venice, right? That's kind of the idea, is that he had this idea for his life. He didn't go to Rome. Mm-hmm. he's in Venice and he's until this experience not able to see the beauty of what exactly. he actually has because of this idea of what he didn't accomplish and and that I think is the enduring message of the film that will always be relevant always mm-hmm. I mean we, we could be on fucking Mars in 500 years mm-hmm. and in a high rise somewhere and that as long as we're still humans I believe that will still be a relevant message for people
2: mm-hmm. um I've got a couple other little bits of trivia you guys want about the film. Yeah, We're rip- let's do it. Uh, there is quietly one of the most experienced actors in Hollywood had been over one thousand films over the course of his career appearing in this film. Can you guess who it is? It's a it's a relatively minor role, but it's notable. Uh, the head of the schooler,
1: the principal that jumped in the pool.
2: Good good guess, but no. Lee, do you have one you want to, you want to make? Uh, no, go ahead. Jimmy the Raven. The pet, the pet, ra- the pet raven of Uncle Billy is one of the most experienced actors in Hollywood. Oh, no. Both at this point <laughs> and thereafter. Was he in the crows, the birds? Sorry, birds. by uh... <laughs> lol. He was in Wizard of Oz, for example. He was, he was the one that was landing on, on the scarecrow, pecking at the scarecrow. He was up I the, forget
1: uh, how how uh, long corvids live.
2: Oh yeah, this, this one, as best we can tell, had a career of 18, 19 years, and probably lived for at least thirty years after. But he, apparently, Frank Capra had first cast him back in like the mid '30s, and was so taken with him, he just kept. Him... <laughs> how do you how do you how do you lose out on the bird role? Like, yeah. you know, do they ha, do they
1: have five readers? Like, oh, he, what's he, going on here? He
2: apparently had 21 stand-ins for certain roles. So apparently, they had a lot of trained crows in Hollywood. Uh, crows and ravens during Hollywood. Um, but... Do they know that they're understudies? Well, it was interesting. They asked several actors, like, who do you think was the best actor in the production? Several separate actors in different interviews identified Jimmy the Raven as the best actor in the production because he didn't have to, re- to relearn his lines and efforts of where Jimmy Stewart one Got time said that... Jimmy hey, Stewart said, if you yelled out Jimmy on the floor, both him and the Raven would immediately turn and ask what their cue was. So, a little bit of trivia there. Also, uh, there was a surprising amount of ad-libbing in this film, which was un- unusual for the production. Uh, During the period, this was when uh, you read the script, you did the script, that was what it was. But there were several scenes that were kind of just thrown in for things. Like, do you remember when um, uh, George and Mary are off walking and they run into drunk Uncle Billy? And he's walking off screen and there's the sound of just like a crash and whatever else. And he just yells at, I'm all right, I'm all right, or something like that. That was actually thrown in. That was not part of the script. At the exact moment that Uncle Billy, the actor, walked off screen, one of the production hands dropped a whole collection of expensive lights. That just (laughs) broke on the ground whatever else. And the actor just yelled out, saving the scene, I'm all right, I'm all right. It made for a funny little moment that they then rode in. Uh, And Frank Capra actually thought it was such a funny scene, he gave the stagehand a raise for excellence in sound design. (laughs) It's one of the things to to comment too, but Uncle Billy is a character. He's a controversial character because he has certain flaws that drive the plot and his alcoholism is kind of just addressed and also put under the rug to a certain degree how did you feel about him as a character including the fact that his loss of the eight thousand dollars at the end is one of the things that makes for the turmoil our character is in
1: so i was sort of wondering um tom sawyer gets a lot more play than i might have expected give it i mean it just doesn't seem like a, a serious touchstone for the movie um like i get like everybody's going to know the book but like it doesn't really feel like it has any ties to the movie i never
2: really thought about that it's kind of clarence's little token item that he has with him from the real world even like at the very beginning of the story doesn't like meet god and he's still carrying tom sawyer with him and well and he's like oh i'm really excited to finish tom sawyer like oh okay
1: so i think Hmm. it's
0: i think it's related to that idea of you know a man who has friends is not a failure um right it's that that tom sawyer's like a A book about friendship ultimately i think we have a weird cultural memory about that book right we tend to think about the the hijinks the painting of the fences the the going to your own funeral all that stuff when i think that the the real thrust emotional thrust of that that book is is this concept of friendship uh, that endures despite personality differences and and time and so maybe um you know they were just trying to hearken images of of friendship through that book
1: actually there's something else interesting that you said the going to your own funeral Hmm. like that, that
2: That is an excellent call, too. Yeah. I think you're both exactly ah, I'm smart. on point. I, no, I think you're both exactly on point. It makes the final gift of the book at the end with the message of No Man Is A Failure With Friends all the more appropriate. I never really thought about that. Great call, y'all.
0: Yeah, uh, I, think that, I think that's probably what's going on there. Spencer, do you have something?
2: Uh, BJ, actually, off pod, brought up an interesting little topic to discuss kind of viewing this film in a modern lens. Slightly different uh,
1: Mark Twain uh, reference, but the... <laughs> uh, the cast was interestingly diverse, like there you know this is 46. just after the war in the forties, and I mean, yeah, we have uh the the housekeeper or maid or or whatever in uh like the original house, but like we have like background characters I think in the bar mm-hmm. when he first comes back after uh being edited out of the world and um Spencer. I, I think you said that they were also, like, giving money at the end to, mm-hmm. like, make up the $8,000. And so, like, they're just part of the town. And I think that that's sort yeah. of a really forward-looking, like, they're, they're, you know, they're not off to the side. They're not sort of, like, in, in a, being relegated to, completely at least, to, to like, classical bit parts.
0: Yeah, Could that have it, played it, into why the FBI thought it was, like, a comment? <laughs> sort of it's it very... It's very possible. I mean, there
2: are there are black characters that have you know prominent roles in this. You can talk about the main black character being a servant in the household, but she has honestly some of the best lines and interacts with the other characters that are like an equal, which is in its own way kind of progressive for the time. And the BJ, like you said, there's a surprising diversity in either background or secondary characters. Like hell, one of the most important, one of the most notable people that George helps is. I think, okay, I, 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 tell me if I got his name right. Was it Martini? Is the name of the Italian immigrants that run the bar, something like yeah, that, Martini? We get to meet their family, we get to see them get in the house, and it's a diverse collection of people from around the world. It's a surprisingly integrated community in some ways, and I think that's very pointed on Capper's part of where A, the American dream is in many ways an immigrant story and a story of people overcoming from, you know, a low position. And two, if we're gonna represent America, if we're gonna represent, you know, what an institution like the building uh, building alone would do, it'd be supporting, you know, the people that are not necessarily in the fixtures or center of society. So that When was kinda... when was
1: like the like period of time where where italian immigrants were sort of uh
2: not completely accepted uh that was like early 20th century so but a few decades before this but there still would have been a lot of memories of that particularly with the at the time the a lot of associations of with italians with the american mafia and things like that too there have been a lot of ostracizing kind of things like that so i also wonder like the world war ii sentiment again since
1: they were not quite on the right side Um, and they jumped up between them at various moments yeah, I guess it it was just a you know would this have been at all a, like a similar movie if we hadn't like it wasn't uh, a, an immigrant basically
0: making this this movie. Yeah, that's an interesting question to ask. I, I I'm think... sure that I'm sure that influenced a lot of the sort of micro decisions. Yeah, so this is really a yeah but film for hashtag Oscar, Oscar so white, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like they can say yeah but look at how progressive Hollywood's been throughout all the years. Look at this back in 1946. That's, that's what we I- did. I-
2: I mean, if it was done now, it certainly would be more integrated and more diverse cast. I'm sure, whatever else, but for 1946, I think it, pretty it good. Merits, merits a note for being more, more prog- subtly more progressive than you might think. Bj, like you said, this might be another note for why the FBI was reviewing this file. No, yeah. Not pretty good. What? Yeah, what? I mean, again,
1: you know, holding it to today's standards is like, a, you know, I think a foolish thing to do. I think 70, you, know, you
2: look back at it, you understand
1: the time, but
2: sure, yeah, sure. Well, another thing, to I think maybe a little bit of a modern lens people look at it, too, is that some people have accused this film of being discriminatory against the disabled and that our main villain is notably wheelchair-bound throughout the whole film and that the film is... Accusing the film in some ways of playing up the evil, cripple kind of stereotype. Do you think that is a fair criticism? Is the film trying to use that aspect of the character to inform the audience about his evilness or whatever else? Or do
0: you think that's off-base? I mean, I feel like we can always do this right so yes. let's say let's say the hero was disabled then we can say well it's playing into stereotypes that disabled people need help and that they're, they're they 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 have to have people rally around them in order to be successful etc etc mm-hmm. if they're the villain then you can say well the, the uh, you're playing into stereotypes that the disabled villain like i just feel like if you're going to put a disabled person in a film you can craft a narrative to say that you're somehow being unfair around it i think Ultimately, what we should be doing is commending the film for having a disabled person on screen. Yeah. That it, it again it continues to normalize that, which is a good thing.
1: Well, yeah. I, my presumption is like this is uh, maybe not a holdover, but a polio. Uh,
0: maybe, yeah, probably polio. Yeah. Possible. I mean,
2: <laughs> well, it's, it's notable. The I think it's one of the big flaws in the argument. I, I saw this in a lot of places when I was looking at contemporary reviews. Biggest flaw in the argument is that Lionel Barrymore was wheelchair bound and. It's not like he was just faking being in a wheelchair for the role. He really to... was. Yeah, yeah. okay. He, he, was, he was handicapped at that point in his life. And I just can't imagine anyone other than Lionel Barrymore playing Mr. Potters because of how well he does with the role. So I, I mean,
1: but... And it had nothing to do... Like, he wasn't angry at the world because he was disabled. It was... You right. know, there wasn't any of the... I mean, he, we got that as recently... I mean, we've got lots of them, but, like, the one that immediately comes to mind is Unbreakable. Um, hmm. And that sort of whole... Whole thing where, like, it's because of his handicap that 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 he's angry at the world or you know and doing this to the world. Where Potter's just, I mean, I mean, there are ways that he ends up being evil, but like, it has nothing to do with him being wheelchair bound. It is that that's just, yeah, a side I, note. Yeah, like I I
0: that. would I would venture to bet that the that that, that that criticism doesn't come from the community of disabled people hmm. because I think it's just. It's just like, it's like if the guy was tall or if he happened to be short or overweight or not, he happens to be in a wheelchair, does not, to me, impact the character at all. And I think that is a very positive.
1: I mean, and to to go further with, like, things in the movie that, like, I I see being criticized, like uh, Mary being in uh, a librarian and, and, like, her only fulfillment is, like, with a man. But, like, she's also doing house repair. Mm-hmm. Like she's doing house I, you repair. Know,
2: it, she's running the USO. She's caring for her right. community. I mean,
1: but but I feel like the house repair is a lot le- like a lot less of a a boxy end of like what women would have be, been doing sure. at the time because sure, it's yeah. not like she does do wallpaper and stuff like that. But like it's significant repairs and like Berger? basically we're told that George doesn't do any of this because he's working long hours.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like me, so, just doesn't want to be bothered.
1: What, what, I mean a little bit of Calme a, a little bit of Kambi. I like I,
2: I 100% approve of this uh, division of labor. Here, what, so what, one little uh, visual moment that I didn't actually really noticed before is um, whenever George is in Mr. Potter's office I had not noticed uh, when I previously the chi- watched the it, chair. the chair is so the much The chair, lower. the
1: insanity of that chair. That's funny,
2: yeah, the, yeah. The, the chair's practically on the floor, whereas Potter's towering over him like a throne. I, I, I love the visual element of that it just shows Potter's vanity and need for superiority over others. That even to visit him, you have to appear as a supplicant. Like judges.
0: How I judges mean, have to be much yeah. higher than you?
2: I'm not allowed to agree with that statement, but sure, yes, that is kind of how it factors
0: in. Yeah, that. one could say if, a, yeah. so, if one's name wasn't Spencer so Spencer I mean
1: I mean I shouldn't single you out I guess but like was that ornately carved wheelchair like a thing at that time or, or at least you know maybe more common in, in wealthier groups because that that very much felt like it was supposed to be
2: almost like a throne it I' I've... I don't know whether, uh, I have actually seen designer wheelchairs from the period, you're reminding me of this, that were incredibly <laughs> ornate. <enormous, laughs> of course you That have. were, you, you're bringing back my mind, they were incredibly <laughs> ornate, they were incredibly built up, they were part of the representation of wealth, so that feels in that vein. But I think the film did it well, that the fact that he always has attendance, the fact that he always has this, you know, elaborate edifices of his office and his wealth about him fits into the character well, and I think the fact they did that with the wheelchair too is a good call.
0: And I feel and like they've actually, gone away from that, right? Because now that the wheelchair ha- is more like an arm as opposed to like a, a piece of clothing, right? Mm-hmm. To yeah. something designed, it's more functional in nature is, is sort of yeah. the, the idea behind it.
1: Actually, you just reminded me, I was thinking about some of the scenes that uh, Potter is sort of depicted as evil, but he re- it's really about a nemesis. Yeah, it's, because it's, it's almost a personal he would, grudge. Like, he... I, I think, and I think you were supposed to believe that he would have returned the money if it hadn't been the Baileys.
0: Yeah, I'm
1: not because so
2: sure.
0: Because he... he, he like I'm with in, you, BJ. I think he, so, yeah.
1: Up until he found out that, it's, that it, it was the Baileys that lost it, he was trying to figure out,
2: like where this money came from. Well it's, it's notable too that as much as George views George himself as you know failing, barely struggling along, we get several scenes that he's having a lot of actual influence and power and threat to in many ways, Potter's enterprises. We get,
1: like, and what that dude that came in was just like you're gonna be working for, well a little bit weird I, but I, like
2: i'm gonna be working for him at some point in the future is what he's right doing. oh yeah that's right but he's like pointing out that you're losing money now because of how much he's gotten people out of your tenements and your slums and whatever else and you the people are developing their own incomes and their own stability so they can open their own businesses and success outside of you he's actually really undermining your future in a way that you can't keep ignoring but it's interesting that George never really sees that. He never realizes that. He never puts two and two together in that point. But part of the reason that Potter's so desperate to defeat the Baileys is because he's losing over time. Yeah. There is an end date here. He's gained all of his wealth. He's gained all his power. And now he can only see it go down from here. Well, at least in the town. We hear him off camera meeting with congresspeople, whatever else. So Bedford Falls may be only a, be a small aspect of his enterprise. But at least right. here, his hometown maybe even, he's not succeeding the way he wishes to. I'm not very sure he
0: was wondering where that I'm not, I did not read that he was wondering where that money went from in an attempt to give it back to somebody. I think he was just like trying to figure out, he was doing some fact finding well, but uh, the fact it was the Baileys Made certainly Minted that he wasn't going to give it back but I'm not sure he would have given it back to anybody. Like I'm not <laughs> willing to get a part of that. I, I,
2: he certainly wouldn't have personally delivered it. He would have sent his man who does, he, does his servant guy that's in every scene with him ever have a single line in the film actually? The guy that's pushing him around?
1: uh i don't think so
2: i don't i don't think I don't he, think he talks, even no. gets a name he just gets talked to he, by potter he's an intimidating guy behind potter in every scene but he's yeah, part of
0: wheelchair <laughs> he's, the, he's a functional element of that guy's existence
2: yeah. the, the wheelchair is you know meant to, be, meant to be an article of clothing that guy is the functional element is, of the apparatus yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, okay uh spencer any uh more tidbits for us from this film you're really knowledgeable about this film no,
2: I adore this film. I've watched it ever since I was growing up. It it's notable that if you if like if you pull up the list of like AFI's top hundred films, I think this one's even now in like the top ten. Not even just as the like top Christmas movies, but like viewed as you know, film scholars is one of the best American films ever made. And I'm with it. I think it's surprisingly timeless, given the era that it came out in. I think it represents wonderful values and wonderful themes, but even beyond all that hokum that everybody views films in nowadays, I think it's just a wonderfully told story and a wonderful oh, cool. bit of production. Um, so I'm all with this film. It's one of my favorites that I recommend to people, is that this will bring you bring you low and bring you high in a way that so other films, that films could ever even aspire to accomplish. It. So before we uh, close out... With our grades. Um,
1: which version did you guys watch? Black and white. <laughs> That, that's a
2: wonderful question, but I watched black, black and, and
1: white.
0: white, black and white for sure.
2: I watched it in color. At, at, to, to credit, so many of the films that are colored were done afterwards by studios that wanted to make their own money off every the film. I yeah. believe Frank Capra actually directly participated in the colorizing of this. So I th- I think so too.
1: Like it it's surprisingly good, and it's I think one that of the like yeah.
2: because like the
1: the the dresses that that the women wear and and things like that that like I think are sort of important callouts to like references that we get later like through lines of i think um like the colors of the dresses on the little girls and then you know when they're older and and Mm -hmm. graduating high school and stuff like that like i think there are nice through lines i did
2: have that moment where i was like i
1: feel like i should watch it in black and white Meh,
2: why not if if you're gonna watch a colorized version of a film this is one of the best to watch this is like you know debating whether you want to watch the original or the dub of the anime or whatever else but for this one you can go either way and be okay but, okay. Um, so are should we gonna do
0: grades or? or let's are, do grades. We, I think uh, we should start with Spencer with grades.
2: This is one of my rare A's, and I think it has to be. I think this is one of the one of the greats of American film cinema. It is a, I think you would judge an A for me of where are there is there a film that you can sit down and rewatch and still enjoy it almost as much, or even in different ways than when you originally watched it. That's a mark of an A for me, and this one definitely qualifies. PJ. Mm. Um.
1: I feel like I need to be the Grinch and go for a B plus. I mean, it, it's a solid movie. It was fun. <laughs> if you're it, going a Grinch and a B plus, I think it's saying something. I mean, sure, like you know, I I think that there are things that you can go further with it, but they're, they're no, valid it's criticisms. a B It was it was
0: it was pleasant. I give it an A. Um, it's one of the best American films ever made. Obviously, it's a top three Christmas movie for me. Um, it's just a wonderful, 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 wonderful film. It's a wonderful life. No, it's, it's a great film. I, I I don't have a ton of criticism about it. I mean, every everything I criticize about it can be almost to a T pulled back to just a product of the time, and if viewed within the context of the time, not a particularly bad criticism. I guess what I'm saying yeah. is like if I'm a, if I criticize it about something, if you look at it through. The it's lens era. of when it was made, it's not not really a big deal, and is actually maybe on the good side of whatever that was. It was it, it, like it was a little bit more progressive for its time. The acting was a little bit better than its time. The mm. storytelling was a little bit better than its time. The sets, I mean, all that stuff that you can complain about, looking at it in 2021 if yeah. you look at it through the lens of then, it, is actually actually probably a positive. So for that reason, uh, and its imminent rewatchability and how it gives you the warm and fuzzies, which I absolutely need in a Christmas movie, A for me, I think that averages out to an A- minus for the film, which is the highest we've ever given on this podcast.
2: You do raise an interesting question. though. was like a wrap-up question I have. I was looking through top Christmas lists because we love to watch Christmas films during the holidays, and every single list, I went through like five or six major publications, listed this as the number one Christmas movie. But, Lee, you said it would be in your top three. Is this your number one, or is there something else that's pushing this out?
0: No, my favorite Christmas movie of all time is Love, Actually. Which
2: is typically in the, at least the top ten of most of the Christmas lists I was looking at, too. Uh, what about you, Spencer? I, I think this one kind of has to rank there. I mean, there's a lot of other ones I love. If we're just basing on one I don't think is the best, but one I just adore watching every year, Muppet Christmas Carol will always have a special place in my heart. I think it is a great film that I very much enjoy. You're <laughs> not a... Die Hard fan? I'm going to say... I have to bring it up. I'm going
1: to say... we've been
2: we've been going on and on. You know, Terry hates it. I'm going to concede a point to Terry right now. And it hurts me to do this. I don't view Die Hard as a Christmas film. I don't. At least, dancing around, moving away from his camera, he's so excited right now. Fine, whatever. I I don't think it is. I think it's a wonderful film, one of the best action movies ever created. Kudos to it. It doesn't... It's not what I look for when it comes to a Christmas film. Yeah. I mean, BJ, I'm... I'm pushing you outside your comfort zone when I ask you this are. question. But how about holiday film for the period?
1: Um, I mean, like, there, there aren't really, a ho- like, other holiday films that eight, I can eight, really eight, reference. Eight but, crazy so nights I will, I will say, okay, we're not putting Adam Sandler films up with, uh, you know, great <laughs> films of the, the 20th century. I was struggling. Um, for,
2: for what, how many, are there many Hanukkah movies during, during that period? Uh,
1: I don't think so. Hmm.
2: Um, I will say...
1: I have fond memories of Miracle on 34th Street. I think oh, it is. I That's see. the mail the, the, the the yeah. in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, Before, Santa's on trial for whether he's Santa or not, but the U.S. Post Office, because they're being freaking lazy, just decide to deliver all the letters to him because they have no idea what else to do with them. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of part like parts to that that
1: are a little bit more nostalgic, and I don't know why. I think that just sort of happened to be like the movie that was on... No. At like this point in time, which, you know, it's ha- it forms so is this, it's a wonderful life. And I'm pretty sure like I caught pieces of it's a wonderful life at times. And
2: um, no. but but no. that's sort of really where I, I love Miracle on 34th Street. It's a wonderful film. It's Natalie Wood's first film before she went up when it did West Side Story decades later. One scene in that film I've always particularly liked is when Santa is talking with the young immigrant girl and starts speaking to her in her native language. And they, mm-hmm. sing, a, they sing a little song together and she hugs him delightfully. It's one of the first people she's ever been able to speak with. It's a film with a lot of heart, too, and a lot of merit. Yeah.
1: So, um, I mean, again, not this would probably be in my top three, you know, as uh, we were saying before. But, you know, I think Miracle and 34th Street would, would have been my go-to. Like, I haven't yeah. seen it in years. But, yeah. All
2: right. Um, well, it, yeah, this is fun. When, when it comes to our comments from our listeners, we'd love to hear from y'all about what your favorite Christmas films are, which ones you would recommend we watch in the future, watch for next season, or even what your thoughts are when it comes to this film. We're happy to address, and any we'll other... have to uh, make our hard right turn back into horror. I think after
1: this, or <laughs> or, or something similar, we'll have to figure aye, out aye. you know what what's next on our docket. But T- to be uh, fa-
2: to be fair, certain elements of this are kind of a horror story too. We have had a gradual transition when it comes to full heartwarming. Sure, I guess but, um, what, but uh, BJ in terms of uh, our ability of our fans to watch our increasingly vast listen, and varied watch, catalog yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, where can they
1: find um, it yeah if you want to find uh, any of our stuff we have a lot of really cool things going on um, you can go to mangumtalks.com M-A-N-G-U-M talks.com it has all of our uh, content and if you've been listening so far we we hope you enjoy all of it uh, we do a bunch of TV shows uh, some book things and uh yeah
2: all all kinds of cool stuff and uh thanks for listening yeah y'all are a treasure we adore doing this we hope you like listening too till next time